Quick note before we get to my chat with someone that I was actually overwhelmed to chat with, Nat Young. This network of podcasts is largely listener supported. So we made a business decision a few years ago to not be solely reliant on the surf industry, to stay independent, and just to be able to pick and choose our brand partnerships. And then as a thank you for the listeners who do donate, we try to give away surfboards every other month. And this month, Almond Surfboards has very generously donated two surfboards for the first time ever. So we're going to pick two lucky winners on December 1st rather than just one. Almond Surfboards has donated a 5.4 quad and an 8.0 single fin, both soft tops. It's their R-series soft top, which they're really kind of designed for you to rip on. They have a couple of design features um, that allow you to just surf more like you would on a hardboard. They have these two wood stringers that are built in and embedded into the uh, high-density foam. They have Futures fin boxes, or at least the shorter of the two boards has Futures fin boxes, so you can use good quality fins in the board. But they still have all the fun of soft tops. So these particular boards are a collaboration with Surfrider Foundation. So if you actually buy a board from them, a portion of the proceeds go to Surfrider but then the boards are also 100% recyclable. Almond has a recycling loyalty program. So you can go to surfsplendorpodcast.com slash donate to learn more about the boards. That's also where we have a PayPal donation button where you can make a one-time donation or set a recurring monthly donation for as little as $5. And any donation in the month of November will be entered to win and your chances, of course, are doubled this month because we have two boards that we're giving away thanks to Almond. And, uh, of course, thank you for the support. Church of the Open Sky is a quote from surfing pioneer Tom Blake, and it's a reference by Nat Young, who is a proud parishioner, as he wholeheartedly views surfing as more than just a lifestyle or more than a drug, but akin to religion in the way that it informs one's belief systems, their diet, their values, the way they structure their time, and the rituals that ultimately rule their life. Church of the Open Sky is also the title of Nat's new book, his seventh, and it's a departure from a lot of his earlier work, or his earlier books anyways, in that it's more sensitive, more contemplative, and it's actually less about Nat. It's more about the figures, friends and foes, that Nat has encountered over his 70 years, other members of this religion who have given Nat gifts of altered perspective and gifts of life lessons. It's candid and a wry reflection that I think is hugely helpful and entertaining for anyone interested in surf history and also anyone interested in gleaning little insights that could inform your own future decisions or just at a bare minimum, your own perspectives. Surfing is unique in that we still have access to so many of the pioneers Nat will be accessible through uh, touring on the West Coast. He's going to be giving talks and discussing the book. 
I'm going to be joining him at the Vistla store in Pacific City in Huntington Beach this Monday, November 11th, to celebrate the launch of the book. I think that's from 4 p.m. to 6 p.m., by the way, so a little bit early in the evening. But he's going to be in Oceanside the very next day, then San Clemente, Laguna, Encinitas, and then heading north all the way through Santa Cruz on November 22nd. I've got a full list of the tour schedule on surfsplendorpodcast.com. But I really hope that you get the chance to meet Nat. And then, of course, if you're in Huntington Beach this Monday, I would love to meet you as well. So Nat Young really needs no introduction, but I would be somewhat remiss to not provide one here. So from the Encyclopedia of Surfing, which they're doing their member drive this month, you should definitely subscribe for three bucks a month. This is a brief overview of what Matt Warshaw has provided there. He reminds us that... Robert Nat Young helped pioneer the shortboard revolution. He was world champ in 1966, longboard champ in 86, 88, 89, and 90, and arguably the single most influential surfer in the second half of the 20th century. In the mid-60s, he began writing and had a weekly surfing column in the Sunday Telegraph. He's published multiple books, including The Book of Surfing, The History of Surfing, and Surfing Fundamentals. He's produced two documentaries. He worked as a model and even appeared on the cover of Men's Vogue in 1989. He's appeared in over 75 surf films. In the year 2000, he was in an altercation on the beach wherein he had both eye sockets and cheekbones broken and it inspired him to write a book of essays on surfing violence called, quote, Surf Rage, A Surfer's Guide to Turning Negatives into Positives, end quote. Nat has four children. His son, Bo, has won two World Longboard Championships. His son, Bryce, is a preeminent shortboarder. And to be honest, one of my own personal favorite surfers, whenever I see him uh, appear in films or video clips, He's also part of Visla's amazing team of talent, and Visla has incidentally made today's show possible. They put me in contact with Nat Young and uh, kind of knew that this podcast would be a great platform for Nat to share some of his stories and his reasons for wanting to write this seventh book, Church of the Open Sky. So Visla.com is, of course, where you can support us by supporting them. Board shorts, t-shirts, flannels, denim, bags, outerwear, wetsuits, or you can also buy all of that stuff through your local retailer, which is kind of the better way just to touch and feel the product. And um, not only do they have great product, but they obviously support surfboard shapers, laminators even, filmmakers, and podcasters. So visla.com. And while you're there, you can actually grab a copy of Church of the Open Sky as well. So without further ado, of course, my name is David Scales for Surf Splendor, and I really hope that you enjoy this conversation with Nat Young as much as I did. You're the only person I've ever interviewed who brought notes. No, I don't actually have notes. I just have things to make notes. 
Oh, okay. Um, ironically, my first diary was given to me in 1963 by a guy that you would know called John Witzig. Yeah. And he said, fill it up. This is when I first went to Hawaii on the first trip with Midget and Kevin Platt. And um, I've kept a diary ever since. And I pretty much know exactly where I am and what I'm thinking pretty much every day because in the afternoons I just write down what the details are and it always been... Uh, it's kind of... That's my... That's what I do, you know. I just keep notes on where I'm thinking and what I'm playing. And then, you know, when I got to this new book... I could simply uh, ask my wife. I was laid up with a, a knee replacement, a full knee replacement, not just a little one, where they cut the tibia and cut the cut the femur, cut the femur, and um, I was in bed for eight weeks. So I started to write again, and I could write basically from my diaries. So I asked my wife to go and get, for example, this is not true, but from 1975 diaries, and all they are is key points. Okay. So here it would say that I'm working with Surf Splendor, David Scales, and I'll talk about where we go with this, you know. Gotcha. Whether, whether, it was, uh, whether I felt good about it or not, you know. Mm. And then in later, later on I can reflect on that as far as if I ever wanted to write about it. So that's how the new book was written and that's actually how Nat's Nat was written too, you know. Mm. So I started journaling at the beginning of this year, like a New Year's resolution. Mm -hmm. My mom... Actually, I've got it right here. My mom uh, got me this. It's basically a one-sentence journal. And if you go to any given day, there's five entries, basically one for each year for the next five years. So the idea is that you write in today's entry, and next year when you get to this page, you could see what you wrote in 2019. That's a good idea. Kind of is. And the one-sentence thing makes it very uh, manageable. If you're not used to the discipline of journaling no. every day, yeah, well, that's right. You know. For me, it's like writing a whole paragraph or even writing for 20 minutes feels daunting, or I just don't have the time. This, I could, one sentence, I could always get yeah, to. Yeah, yeah. You know? uh, I, I think anything to, um, some people just don't want to be disciplined like that. You know, you've, some people have just got so much going on in their lives, they can't even fit it in. It's just that this is, there's a few things in my life that are really important, and this is one of them to fill in the diary and meditation is another thing which I've been doing since 1974, 70, 73. And, um, you know, the, you just have to have things, things that are important for you that are, are a part of your life, you know, and, 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 and kind of like the same with surfing, you know, like if I don't do that consistently, then I don't feel like I'm in balance, you know. Right. And I can substitute skiing for it to a degree, but I need to um, I need to consistently uh, ride waves and be around nature, uh, be around the ocean. And that's that's the nature's good, but it's not the same as actually having that physical adrenaline rush of riding waves. Right. Um, back to writing. You mentioned that a lot of the benefit is being able to reflect on it later and it serves as an outline mm -hmm. for writing longer pieces. Do you find any catharsis in the act itself? Uh, no. No. My, my, it's, I don't uh, these days write physically, you know, anymore, you know, other than the, the journal or the diary as I call it. But I, 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 I don't really 
type very well at all. But what I do is um, I'm impressed by computers if I'm just using them for that function. I don't want to know about all the other functions of my my MacBook Pro other than the fact that I can sort of step through things and come back to it and edit and move around. And I, I think... I think as long as I keep that in perspective, that's just fine. I don't. I don't want for. Um, I don't want for anything more out of it. You know how all these things offer all these options, and I don't want any more options. I just want to be able to type with it, mm-hmm. and to be able to save it, and be able to edit it, and then I'll give it uh, give it on to an editor who's much more um, together than I am about the uh, English language. Gotcha. Do you read? I read a lot. You do. I just finished uh, three books on uh, a three-book trilogy by Jack's Jack's second name. Anyway, the last one was The Guardian, and it's really the story uh, of uh, you've all heard of Braveheart, right? And, mm-hmm. and well, this guy, uh, my family. This is I read this this last trilogy because they were uh, the story of the Douglas clan, and that's my mother's family history oh really so i find that really interesting because i can uh, I, I can just really not he didn't do the right thing by william wallace he sort of was treacherous and said that he was but he was an earl so he sucked up he thought the power was going to be with uh, with king edward and that whole thing and really, you know he should have stuck with uh, with he should have stuck with uh, william wallace and that that whole thing of what was happening in Scotland, but he didn't. And uh, he said that he was, and then he changed his mind, you know. So it's interesting for me to read somebody that, of course, I'm connected, so I'd like to know just sort of exactly how we got there and why we did that and what were the circumstances. And, you know, the fact of not supporting uh, William Wallace was probably one of the silliest moves he ever made, but... He stuck with the winning team, and the winning team was uh, was the English because of so many issues. Even just their longbows meant that they could they could fire an accurate arrow twice as far as the traditional Scottish uh, bow. And once again, it was the the church that really uh, where that a lot of that information comes from. And you know that that to me is one of the best things about the, about the church. I don't know how long. Um, in Australia, you know, the, all the churches have been taking a hell of a beating of late, you know, over pedophilia, and uh, and and I see that as probably for society in general as a bad thing because a lot of these people are really well-meaning and they really do a good job, but uh, unfortunately, it's like the bad apple, you know, and it's really bad for the Catholic Church, you know, because I'm, yeah, it's terrible PR form, terrible optics, but. I wonder how long our church will last. What's our church? Our church is the church of the open sky, yeah. on Blake's words, right well, from the top. I heard you say that you think surfing could be bigger than the Catholic church and, and certainly more meaningful. Well, the thing is that you've got to think about grandchildren's grandchildren, grandchildren. Now, I know that all my grandchildren are going to be surfers, and I'm only dealing with four of them. But what, you know, if you start to multiply that out and you multiply by how many surfers are in California and then how many surfers are in the world and how many wave pools and how many skate parks, 
You know, I mean, we're talking, you know, this is going to be a force certainly to be considered and possibly... We have a unique situation in Australia that you don't have here. What we have is uh, we have one of the nine people that just really is involved in constitutional law is a surfer. So one of our Supreme Court judges is a... And, you know, you refer to him as a justice... And that's exactly what he is, you know. They make the laws of the country. And when you start to get that sort of influence where the actual people in power have surfer consciousness, he doesn't surf anymore, he can barely see. He's 87, I think. And it's it's very difficult to be... But to think... I was at a luncheon with the Australian Surfing Lawyers Association the other day. They were just buying books because... We did a thing, Rabbit and I, with Surf Aids, you know, where, and that, what a great organisation that is for sure. And, and so uh, the Australian surfing lawyers support them heavily. So what I was doing was uh, helping with that support and also uh, selling a bunch of books for uh, Penguin Random House, who, who happened to own this book. They, they bought it off me, but I still, don't, I still want to do the best job I possibly can, you know. Of course. You got to do a good job. You got to finish what you start. You know, and you want people to read the book too. I was just yeah, because it's you know it's coming from um, greater or lesser uh, situation as as one of the tribal elders, and I'm not even saying that that's totally unique. There's thousands, especially in California, there's thousands of tribal elders out there, and I'm just happen to be one who was reasonably well connected and in the right place at the right time in other words you know yes i was involved in the shortboard no i didn't design the shortboard but i could ride the bloody things mm-hmm. and i knew exactly how to shape one yeah basically through mctavish sure but was that any more than what uh, what dick um dick brewer he achieved significant things with oh, the yeah. shortboard too so i i you know, it's a difficult situation to say who did what first. And in this book, I think I pretty much nail it. That, you know, it, it, what it is is I believe in idiosyncrasy. Mm. I believe that if people are searching for the same thing, and they were in that period, late 60s, that we all happened to hit on the winning combination at a similar time. Sure. And it's the same thing with the... I mean, I was shaping boards with three fins right in the same surfboard factory of Simon Anderson when yeah. he came up with the act of, of, of the thruster. My one, I just didn't happen to have the right combination, and mm. Simon did, you know. I, I just think you've got to really consider all these... Uh, you know, there's so many facets to everything, you know, and it's really, it's really interesting, I think. But. Well, with design, lots of times it's in the ether. You know, it's like everything is happening, and so... Um, different parts of the world are kind of accessing all of the information mm-hmm. and coming to the same conclusions simultaneously. Yeah. And one thing makes it to market. The reason why something makes it to market and takes off could be a lot of different variables. Well, at play. With, it could well, just I can be tell marketing. you for sure with the thruster, it, it was because it worked better than any yeah. other three fin. Simon's, Simon's worked better. Simon's worked much better than my one. Oh, okay. And I was building exactly the same thing with a bigger center fin and many, many people, you know, I sold hundreds of them. So why did his work better? They work better because of the combination of having a small center fin oh. and behaving sort of with the difference of being slightly um, 
slightly more single fin in feel than a uh, than a twin fin. Mm. When the twin fin was just too loose. I mean, MR made me a twin fin for a uh, trip I did uh, to the East Coast one year, and I couldn't keep the thing in the water, even in three-foot surf. And, you know, I needed something more to hold it down, you know, just for my style of surfing. MR was, was doesn't need that, you know. He didn't need that. Yeah. And so the twin fin feel was a whole different way to go, you know, whereas the single fin thing was not really loose enough. So the, the combination uh, had to be right how much actual area of fin was on the bottom of the board and the placement. Gotcha. And that's why it worked so well for Simon, you know. Gotcha. And for the millions of people who bought it after that. That are still riding him. Yep, exactly. Um I wanted to discuss your uh, graceful exit from professional competitive surfing in the mid-70s. A decade prior, you had ushered out Phil Edwards and led the shortboard revolution, winning events and a world title, but it seemed that just as quickly you seemed to accept that something new was happening in the 70s, and you gracefully bowed out. So, which, this is something that we actually don't see that often in professional surfing. We see some of our greatest uh, surf champs struggle to keep up with progression and maybe a reticence to acknowledge one's own limitations. For you, Michael Peterson seemingly stepped into your role of being a dominant competitive surfer. Tell me about your reason uh, to exit competition and was there a specific moment with MP that instigated it? Well, um, he did it better than I did, <laughs> and I could very easily. So tell me about that. Like, what uh, was it? What Was there a specific moment that you recognized that happening? Yeah, he, he came to stay with me uh, one time. I'm not sure which book I wrote this about. It must be in, must be in Church of the Open Sky, I suppose. But it's about he, he came to stay with me um, after a surf at Lennox Head one time, and it was, you know, he was just... I realised out in the water there was probably only a half a dozen of us and I think I realised that sort of he was doing it better than what I was doing and his turns were more acute. He was pulling in much more uh, later than what I was, you know, and I, I was still surfing pretty well in those days. But I think that you just sort of... There's a point when you just realise that, you know... This guy or this, you know, particular direction is not something that you really want to do. I mean, once again, Tom Blake said it very clearly to me that competition in surfing is something everybody should go through. Fine. I went, I went through it, you know. Kelly seems like he hasn't gone through it, but that's fine. You know, everybody's got their own pace and their own way. Obviously, he... And, you know, I could tell you some funny stories about Kelly and his association with, with Quicksilver over that. You know, he was given the option to still get his million dollars and get out years ago. But that's what he likes to do. You right. know? This is what his... But for me, and here I am living on the farm with my wife and, and one child at that stage, and I'm really having a good time. It's perfect pretty much Lennox Head every couple of days. If it wasn't, the swell was from the north and I was surfing Broken Head or ba and I had good friends with me to, to surf and those people are still good friends uh, to this day. One of them's died, but this, the other two are, are Californians that came to Australia in 1968 
and they're still close mates. I, I don't. Um, I think that you do everything at the pace that you feel comfortable with. And for me, the comfortable pace was to stop competition. And uh, then, after an association with a guy called Doug Warbrook, who was one of the owners of Rip Curl, and another guy called um, well, anyway, he was the head of the uh, Association of Surfing, Graham's... Uh, Stapleberg. No, not Stapleberg, the other Graham. Um, that's, I can't believe sometimes that I actually forget things, but I really am getting old because <laughs> I do forget. And you wouldn't think that I should, but I do. And that's why, essentially, you should keep diaries. <laughs> right. then, you, yeah, yeah. then you can refer back to it. But anyway, it's, um, it's, it's one of those things where you really do have um, a time for you, you know, to say, I don't want to do that anymore. Mike, my son competed, Bryce, this is, and also Bo for that matter, but for Bryce is what I was thinking about. Um, he competed for about, oh, I think about five years. He's only 26 now. And he didn't start surfing until he was about, oh, he started surfing when he was like three, but he didn't really get it together until he was a bit older. I remember in the end of it, he was, he, he just went, I don't want to do this anymore, Dad. And he was probably 15 maybe. Yeah. And I went, fine, don't do it, mate, don't, you know. I think it was sort of – and I don't think it was a problem with being beaten. I think it was just whether there's a taste of satisfaction in that. I know. So the detail that I'm uncertain on or I want to know how you have such clarity on is there's tons of things I don't want to do, but they're good for me to do them. And – I, I could see Kelly encountering Andy Irons and Kelly already had whatever seven world titles at that point. And he could view Andy the same way that you viewed Michael Peterson and go, wow, this guy's doing it better, differently, completely. Like, I guess now's the time for me to bow out. I've got more world titles than anybody I could bow out, but there was something in him where he realized he wants competition and he thrives on it. So he buckled down and now he's won five more titles or four more titles. And that, that's probably the right decision not, for him. And yeah, your I'm decision sure is, is the right for you. But, but my decision was based on the fact that I wasn't, what I'm trying to point out there with, with Bryce's scenario, there wasn't any more satisfaction in it for me. Mm. I didn't really, you know, it wasn't the fact that Michael was that much better than me. I, I guess I could have, in fact, I did come back and got involved in another contest after that. But I don't really, if it doesn't taste good, why would you do it? And in, in, in Church of the Open Sky, I, I bring up several different people that simply had had enough. They, maybe they were only 15, 20 years old. Bryce is a classic one. For me, I thought, you know what? I, don't, you know, I have a perfect lifestyle. I had really nice sponsors here in America. Dewey Weber Surfboards was paying me every week, you know, just to do my uh, time as, on the tour here, uh, which was the tour was really a, just a... Um, a social interaction with the dealers on the East Coast in those days, you know, and I was doing the best I possibly could. I'd take them to lunch, we'd sell them surfboards, a guy called Mike Tabling and I, and that's what we were basically doing. We were making sure these guys bought our boards instead of Bing's. Right. And sometimes we'd win, sometimes we'd <laughs> lose. Right. But that's, that was all a part of the job. And so what I'm saying is that Kelly sees this competitions as a part of his job. 
to me, surfing is what my job is. I love to ride waves. Right. So the reason I was out there surfing today, I see myself as a tribal elder and as I'll surf as long as I possibly can because I'm going to, and you know, I, we had a particularly good swell this year. We had probably the, one of the best three-month periods on the north coast of New South Wales that I've ever seen. Mm. I surfed every day except for four in good high-quality waves. Wow. So uh, you just go, that's really what I need. Yeah. I don't need competition. I didn't need competition. I don't, don't think I even needed it when I was younger, but I was doing it. But, you know, you've got to go through it in order to find out what it's like. So even if somebody, you know, is going through it and takes longer, it doesn't matter, yeah. you know, or, or takes well, shorter or, you know. Well, so what what brought you back to it in the 80s? Because, um, you, I mean, you are responsible or largely, you know, helped pioneer the shortboard movement, and that's from, like, say, 67 to 71. And then you came back and won four Longboard Board well, world that, titles that in the was, 80s. That was um, that was an obligation. Oh, was it? Yeah. Oh, okay. Because I was on the board of the um, of the ASP in those days. Yeah. And it was really the fact that they didn't have an understanding of what good longboarding was. In other words, they weren't. They were trying to judge it like shortboarding, which was a real mistake because that doesn't really qualify. You know, it's it's a terrible thing to be judged on uh, on points for manoeuvres when what you have to really do is throw in style because style is the big element here. And so that was brought home very clearly to the judges and we got involved heavily and I, I, I th- like to think that I had a very, very good influence on that. I mean, I know the whole thing's gone out the wall or out the door since then, but at that point, I was, I had to set a benchmark. So they're saying, well, okay, well, what is good style? Why don't you show us? So therefore, I got back into competition. And uh, of course, I won because I had a certain style that was based on uh, something that I've learnt from Midget Farrelly, Phil Edwards, these guys were my role models and they and so but I could give it my twist all the time but really I was just surfing the way I um, the way I really felt was the right style for me and I think I still surf that way on a longboard now hmm. I mean that's that's the way surfboards were turned you know you stood <laughs> on one side and you applied pressure by bending your knees and and you, it was more of a it's quite a subtle thing to do a good drop knee turn I think and I I, I really love to do it and I have to um, I have to really discipline myself to stay down and then walk out of the turn and it's not at all like what you do with shortboard surfing right um, Matt Warshaw told me that his all time favorite forgotten surfer is a guy named Bobby Brown mm-hmm. who is Bobby Brown to you. Church of the Open Sky, I spell it out very clearly. Bobby was a friend of mine and uh, he was a little bit older than me. He actually was the, the first guy to uh, beat uh, Midget Farrelly in Australia. I wasn't competing. I was too, too, too young to really openly compete with Midget, but, uh, but Bobby did because he was a bit older. And 
unfortunately, he um, came to the end of his uh, his time with a uh, an argument in the Tarrant Point Hotel over whose twenty cents that was on the end of the pool table, and the guy. Well, the reason that the guy that all was very foggy is, and I don't know because I was not there, of course, but I was pissed off that it happened and that the guy actually walked free who stuck the beer glass into Bobby's juggler and killed him right there in front of everyone. Uh, There's an ugly side to a lot of things when it comes to Australia and that's Mm. one of them. You know, there is there is a lot of hotels. Um, they do fester a lot of violence and some of the reactions of um, some of the patrons are a little extreme, to say the least. I think that you've really got to... You've, you've got to understand that Bobby, they, this guy, the guy who killed him, you know, who didn't go to jail because the judge in the end said that there was... Everybody was too intoxicated to be able to assess exactly what happened but the whole of surfing in Australia went into mourning about this and we were so young in those days there wasn't that many you know I, I'd been with Bobby just months before that I didn't go back I, I we'd spoken but we didn't even have phones and communication you know things were really very very loose you know you'd see him because all the guys on the south side used to come to the north side on the weekend to surf with you. Yeah. So we all surfed Long Reef and then we'd go to the pub and then, you know, and, you know, have a drink. Not not us because Bobby and I were too young, but, I mean, you yeah. know, I have some fond memories of just him and me getting drunk on some horrible bloody sparkly wine that a guy bought us and gave us in the back of the car. And, you know, I just my first trip up the coast with Bob Evans with, was with Bobby and Kevin Platt both of those guys, you know, just it's been good th- good stuff to write about and good stuff that I actually had um, I had diaries to refer to and sure. also there was there were certain things there that are fact about the way it all came down and uh, uh, Bobby's fiance was uh, never recovered, I don't think, you know, and also the family. There were two other boys in the family, two sons. So uh, you know, just. I mean, I guess you just you just have to sort of grin and bear it and go, shit happens, but uh, it was very unfair. And for Australian surfing, devastating because he was so uh, artistic. He was such a beautiful surfer. Um, as far as I was concerned, I mean, you know, an unbelievably fine surfer and an unbelievably nice nice person. You yeah. know, we were We were good mates. Yeah. What's responsible for your peaceful perspective on this? You seem to have undergone a transition, is what I mean. Like your nickname was the animal, and it was bestowed upon you for your aggression as a competitor. But you were also the recipient of one of the more horrific and famous incidents of surf aggression. How has that incident shaped you? I backhanded a kid once, and his his father... um, uh, decided that he was going to come, come over, and which is probably fair enough at least to talk to me about it, but he, sure. didn't, he didn't talk to me about it. He just uh, laid into me and beat me to into submission because he was a bouncer at one of the local pubs. And uh, so the end result of that was that, um, you know, that I couldn't prosecute him because I actually had um, backhanded his son. But um, the... 
reality was that, um, you know, he couldn't help himself. He did it to two other people after that. The bouncer did? Yeah. Well, it was. I wasn't going to be the first and last person. This is how, how he solves problems, not by talking about it, but by actually um, laying people out. It's what he does when he worked for the uh, works in a pub, you know. He was just a bouncer at the door. Right. So he... Um, he built, beat the shit out of two people and uh, basically he uh, got himself into a situation where he was told that he had to, uh, because he, his um, his uh, legal team uh, said, you know, like this guy's got a wife and two kids, he's got to support so you can't put him in jail. And the, the magistrate agreed with him and said, okay, fine, then what you've got to do is you've got to make sure that you maintain a job to support those people and when you can't maintain a job, then we're going to put you in jail. So um, what he did was he uh, he beat up these other couple of people and um, put them in hospital, much worse than me actually. One of them was, you know, broken arm over the over his knee and yikes. I mean, he, he was a heavy, he's a heavy guy. He was he was heavy, but the good thing about all that was that. Um, and I resolved my issues with him. We talked about it, got together with him after that, after I recovered. We talked about it and he, he was always, a, you know, he was always really aggressive, but he, he had a lot of respect for me, but it was just that he thought that that was the time that I should be handled like that, you know, because it's hard to deal with uh, anybody with that sort of mentality. I mean, uh, where somebody smashes first and then talks about it later, which is what happened with me. He smashed me first. I went into hospital for however long it was, weeks, and then, uh, and then you know, we talked about it. But after he did it several more times, then the police had a problem. So the police said, okay, fine, then you're going to have to... Uh, you can't keep a job, then you're going to have to move on. You'll have to move out of town. This is a small town. I only had, in those days, 3,000 people in the town. And so, uh, so that's what he had to do. He left town and he's never been back. You know? When you spoke to him and you feel like you reconciled with him, do you feel like he had, um, I don't know, was there any hope of him changing his ways? No, no, he just did. You just personally needed, reconciled? This is, is a personal reconciliation, but he, he simply didn't, he doesn't have, that's the way he'd, he'd come from a bikey background. He's from the western suburbs of Sydney and he really and, and he explained it all to me and I really you know I really sympathized that somebody could really um, think that you can solve problems like that it's one thing to work as a bouncer but to actually solve problems by with out, your fists out in the real world yeah yeah it's a different that's a different way you know right. he wasn't just throwing somebody out of the pub he he put me in hospital for quite a long time and it was it was in a lot of ways it was good for me, really, because it made me even more respectful of uh, of other people, and uh, you know, and and I would never ever uh, now. I mean, my my delight in surfing these days is to if I'm paddling and there's some guy out there that's aggressive, we don't really get that much where I live, but just tell him go. I don't I don't need them. The older I get, the less I need. I really don't need that many waves anymore. Mm. Like I surfed this morning, I only got. I got maybe a dozen waves, and two or three of them were any good. That's fine. I don't have any desire for any more. Why is that? And why do you think you needed them in your youth? Well, I think because I think when you're young, you're, you're uh, over anxious, and also I don't think with less surfers in the water, 
you could do that, you know. I mean, like, it was a, it's not a difficult situation to be taking it. And I actually remember there was a time when I really thought that this wave was meant for me. So, you know, which is, uh, which is not true, really. But, I mean, that's how I, I think in those days I could get away with that, you know. And I had to come to terms with the fact that that's not, it's not meant for me. It's meant for a whole bunch of other people besides maybe me yeah. if it all goes right. But you've got to give to receive. There's a lot of lessons that come with you, with age and getting over youth. So that's that's actually more to what my question was going to be about um, with the altercation is my perception of your persona from back in the 60s and 70s was the animal. And there was kind of an aggressive, competitive, really competitive streak. And my impression of you now, and certainly from reading Church of the Open Sky, is this more kind of philosophical, contemplative, much less aggressive. Is that an accurate uh, perception? Um, yes, because um, I'm quite certain in my youth I did some things that I really regret that I should have uh, and I'm glad I grew out of it, you know. But like anybody who says that they didn't do some stupid things in their past is probably full of shit. For sure. So, I mean, I just simply, uh, in some respects, uh, I, I grew out of, uh, out of... I don't have any aggression in me at all really? on any level. I, you know, I, I could... I honestly could care less, you know. My attitude is I'm lucky to be alive especially some of the things I've done, you know, so, and will continue to do. I love to live on the edge, you know. I skied 117 days last winter. Did you really? And uh, and 27 or 24 of those was in knee-deep powder. So as far as I'm concerned, that gives me a feeling really similar to surfing, and I think I do it pretty well. Well, compare and contrast it with surfing, how are they different, and what do they? What do each of them provide? Well, if you're talking about where your head's at, just simply, you know, not getting not not physical here, but just throwing your head down a fall line, which is what I think you're getting at, David. That's exactly where I'm coming from. Like I shouldn't have to think about my breathing because I know that my breathing. Every time I'm turning, I'm breathing out. That's fact. And if I've got to join faster turns, then I can breathe in and out as quick as anyone because my my breathing isn't hampered by uh, smoking cigarettes or and you know and, and if anything, it's enhanced by a bit of pot every now and then, but not 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 too much. I don't get to that because not over any um, issues. Just that I don't I don't really uh, I, it just doesn't fit into my day plan, you know. But I don't have a problem with it. Sure. So what is, um, we always hear people pontificate or just wax poetic about surfing and all of the spirituality that comes with it and really paint it as a being very unique and different than any other sport. No, it's not. It's you find exactly. parallels with skiing? Absolutely. Really? You know, oh shit. Yeah. I was just mentioning the breathing, but also just being able to throw yourself down a fall line. Yeah. Because, you know, 
and using your turns to either slow down or speed up on that fall line. That's what I do when I surf. If I make it a long turn, it means that I'm going over there and I'm going over there as quick as I possibly can. Yeah. And sometimes I've got to cut the turn really short, you know, yeah. which is what's really nice about having the right sort of surfboards underneath you and the right skis yeah. and or, or snowboard. You know, there's no difference how you're standing on a thing anymore, you know, whether you're standing with your feet in a goofy foot position or a thing. It's just simply what you're accustomed to and what you're comfortable with, but... It's all the same. I ski, um, not nearly as much as you do apparently, but surfing is unique to me. Like just being, first of all, the finite resource of the waves and um, not knowing if they're going to be good, you know, and the inconsistent playing surface and all of those things make it feel a little bit more special and unpredictable, certainly more finite and I have to work harder for it. Whereas if I plan to go skiing this weekend, I know what the conditions are going to be like and I go and I ski, you know? So that element of it and just being enveloped in the ocean, I think is different than just going and playing on the surface. Sometimes I, um, sometimes I ski every day, you know, during the winter and I spend the winters up here in, in America. Um, sometimes I'll go out and I'll only get, I'll ski four or five places that I know are potentially good. And if they're not good, I'll go home and read. I'm not, you know, I mean, I, I have a taste for quality. It's just like this morning, I have no reason to surf. If it would have been better, I would have stayed out longer and I would have called you when I got in and I would have said, I, I can't make it at all today, David. Yeah. But essentially, and I'd expect you as a surfer to understand that because that's kind of the way things work Uh you know, it's 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 a mentality thing, you know. Like surfing's a state of mind. It's not something that's bloody, you know, everybody goes, oh, but, you know, does that mean you've got to surf every day or does that mean you have to, you know, be a really good surfer? No. The wives of surfers have absolutely under, or the girlfriends have really good understanding of what surfing is and how that relates to nature and how it relates to sort of, you know, just, just the compassion and the fact that the, it's an addiction. We have to do it as much as we possibly can, you know. Mm -hmm. But but also the balance there comes with the fact that, well, hey, there's no waves, you know. Like this, the surf where I live in Australia stopped two weeks ago. It was like, and I turn around and I go, and I had to start the book tour in Victoria, right there in the, in the surf museum and then go to Strapper and do the, you know. And then back to Sydney and into big book tours and then up to Queensland with the, the, the Gold Coast Surf Museum. I mean, and Noosa. I mean, all of this was fantastic, but it meant that the surf had stopped. There wasn't any more surf. There was no more waves. So what I can do is concentrate on the other things. Yep. And even here now, I'll concentrate as long as I possibly can and then hopefully there'll be plenty of snow come. I've had enough <laughs> of that medium of riding waves. Have you? I, oh, right now, I did. I surf for three and a half months every day, and every day was two foot to six feet to eight feet to two foot to four foot, to, and I only had three days off. Yeah, and it's just, it's a bit too much for me to be quite honest. But I because it's such a strong addiction, there wasn't any way I could turn it down. You know, I get up in the morning, I live right on the beach, I'm looking at the surf. 
When in doubt, paddle out, you know. <laughs> Is that the saying? Shit, yeah. Oh, okay. Because I thought on the North Shore it's the exact opposite of that. Well, that's not the, you know, let's no, face I know. it. I'm just Australia messing is not the bloody North Shore. Um, but what I like about everything that you're saying, and I think this is kind of reflective of an older era of surfer that couldn't make, you know, millions of dollars um, being a pro surfer, is that you've developed all these other interests and hobbies. And I really worry, like now the kids that are on tour are so surf centric from a viewing standpoint of the WSL, they're void of personality. The surfing becomes really homogenized. Mm. And I think it's reflective of, they're just not pulling any influence from anywhere else. Whereas you are interested in writing, you're interested in politics, environmentalism, uh, skiing, all these other things that make you a more interesting character. Kelly, I think is a very interesting character. He certainly has a lot of other interests outside of surfing. But um, I'm glad to hear that you get surfed out. Well, only through that medium because yeah, exactly. You know, I just because you have I other passions in need, life. I don't need to play with the water right now. I mean, I, I've got a brand new board coming, which is fantastic that I've been managed to uh, to talk uh, Ryan Birch into shaping me a new asymmetric seven three. That's what I surf every day, except when it's really big. I've got an eight two, like for probably a dozen day and half a dozen days of those, you know, 42 or something I'm telling you about, I, I need a bigger board, you know, just yeah. to catch him and feel comfortable off the bottom. And, you know, but when it comes to everyday surfing, two foot through to four or five feet, seven three is just fine. Mm-hmm. And Ryan's boards, uh, you know, to my mind, they're the same. It's the same design boards that my son Bryce surfs. So, yeah. and he actually turned me on to Ryan. Ryan spends a month with us every year, so you know I'm in pretty good shape. Whereas if he wants to come to the house, I have to make sure he shapes my boards. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but he, you, he understands that. What about his boards? Do you like what works well about him? Uh, well, I love the fact that you've got this almost like a keel fins feeling on your forehand. And uh, which is the longer side, and then uh, the longer side of the curve, and then when you come off the top, you can actually you can tweak it so as because the, the back on your off the top or on your turning left for me, um, it's it's a normal quad fin setup. So what that does is it means that they can turn really sharp if you want them to, but you can also lay them out pretty long. You know, I've used it. I've been doing this for three years with asymmetric boards now, and that's really all I ride when it comes to, um, like I say, everything besides a longboard. And I only use a longboard when it's um, when it's particularly uh, small, and you know, you can tell sometimes when you look at it and you just go, "Yeah, I can see that being a really nice place to ride the nose and to do sort of swooping turns." But it's not uh, it's not my preferred style of surfing. My preferred style of surfing is some with a little four to six foot with a little guts back in the pocket, you know. Yeah. Where you can pull in and then roll it really hard off the bottom and then off the top. Have you um, ridden any asymmetrical boards from other shapers other than Ryan? No. Do you find any limitation to the asymmetrical design? No, not at all. Yeah. No, I haven't. I, I don't either. But I haven't. I must say, David, I haven't surfed any of the other boards, so I don't, I don't, 
I don't know. Um, I knew of asymmetric boards yeah. going back a long way. We all did, you know. So I'm not uh, I'm not saying that I had my head in the sand there. I, I knew what they were like, but I it never it just never really came into my. Uh, it wasn't on the dance card. The dance card was sort of when I got in. I mean, and I wouldn't have even. I think I tell the story very clearly in uh, Church of the Open Sky that Ryan and Bryce gave me my first one for my uh, for, for Father's Day about three years ago now, where they both I was just helping them get the boards out of the car and they just I said oh this is a little corky for you guys you know and they went Happy Father's Day Dad <laughs> you know so just so sweet you know yeah and, totally and they've been they've both been very nice like that you know and then after that of course you know that I've I've had one that was too small, the 610 was too small, the 76 was too big, you know, you just got to, yeah. you know, you got everybody gets to tweak things for what's most comfortable for them, you know, and you got to catch them. Everybody goes, oh, well, you know, what What about, you know, catching them? If you can't catch them, you can't ride them. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. That's simple shit. Well, with asymmetry, I was riding an asymmetrical board this weekend, um, Inevitably, somebody asks me about it. Somebody walking by comments on it and wants explanation. And I feel like the view for people who haven't ridden them, they look very complicated and they can't wrap their brain around it. And they want a lot of explanation. And they're like, well, what if you go left? What if you go right? And the reality is there's no limitation to the design. It works better generally in my experience in all conditions, in small waves, in big waves, there isn't any learning curve. Mm. You don't write it differently. You write it exactly like you're used to surfing. But like you said, there's a sensitivity on the heel side that you benefit from. And then there's kind of uh, drive and length on the toe side that you can benefit from as well. And I think so. Yeah. I, think, I think I feel like I've, uh, I feel like I, I don't have any desire to change surfboards. Not at all. It's all good. But the the asymmetry is an improvement. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. But I need a new one, you know, because yeah. the one over there, um, Bryce actually, I broke a leg rope one time in some really too big for the leg rope I was using, and the board went on the rocks and had to, you know, it's they're, they're never the same after you have to. In the old days, we used to think that you never really know them till till you repair them yourself, yeah. you know. But the that's it's not like that anymore. I just uh, to get the perfect feel on the bottom. I can't have a dent or a, no, I don't want anything to really interfere with the flow on the bottom of that board, you know, at all. You yeah. Know? So it's more a matter of just ensuring that. Anyway, uh, when Ryan gets back from Japan, he, if he hasn't made it yet, I haven't checked with anybody. But I'll, he'll he'll be back soon. Yeah. And I'll kick his little ass. <laughs> Um, you've written seven books, I believe. Uh, I, I don't count them, but you know, yeah, I suppose, sounds good. Uh, why write Church of the Open Sky? I was in bed with a, um, recovering from a complete knee replacement and it seemed to me it was just, um, the most constructive thing I can do. Also, I, you know, I'd still been writing because, you know, I'm a big fan of the journal and I'd written a couple of things for the journal the last few years. And uh, only because I've always really liked Honey Bear. Pesman's been a, he was a good, loyal friend. Is Honey Bear your personal nickname or? No, no, that was his nickname at Surfer Magazine. Oh, man. I didn't know that detail somehow. Yeah, no. You call him Honey Bear. I still call him Honey Bear. 
It's a good description. Yeah, because he's, he is. He's a big bear, you know. Yeah, totally. But anyway, so the, my thinking there is just that um, that I had to uh, do something constructive. I was getting up for the physio, but that was a bit too painful in the first few days. So, you know, when I'd uh, lay back down again, I'd get my beautiful wife, Ty, uh, to go and bring me some more diaries. And, you know, I'd start to string things together and, you know, the stories, you know, like I said before, it's, I've been fortunate enough to have some really good friends. Like the, in the journalist uh, quarter, they've got the story uh, on that I'd never told before because I didn't, I didn't actually really want to. But there's a lot of people that have been putting shit on Dora, you know. But I tried to write this. This he was my mate, you know. And I don't like people putting shit on my mates, you know. So I was, and I know he was a scallywag. <laughs> And there's no two ways about it. But I kind of love that. And I tell stories in this that where you go, oh, why would he possibly do that if he's a friend? Because that's just the way Mickey was, you know. And, and you know, it's same as when it comes to Hollywood. He loved it passionately. But he also hated it even more so. Mm. You know, these fuckers had come to bloody, come to Malibu and raped his beautiful woman, you know. And he was just... I really understood his passion for surfing. I loved it. And I wanted to write more stories about that, you know, and so I did, you know. What do you think the biggest misconception uh, is about him? Well, th- well, that's it, that he, that, that he was just a, just a thief who oh. was out for everything for himself. That he didn't have any virtue. That he didn't have any virtues, you know. And I, but that to me was, um, it's, it's a great shame that people could see that, you know. That someone likes to um, play games, I think that's great. You know? mm-hmm. I mean, like he made every, all my, you know, he was giving me tennis lessons in France. And um, he, he told me, they said, this is fucking boring. I said, oh, yeah. And he said, well, he said, yeah, I got an idea. So we jumped in the car and we went down there and he bullshitted. I won't go into all the details because it'll take too long. He bullshitted our way into the St. Jean de Luz um, tennis club. Uh, started playing uh, with me, started acting like, you know, like I was just a kook and, you know, he needed a real game and sucked in a couple of Frenchmen on one of the other courts. Push comes to shove. He, uh, you know, we he loses another, you know, more money than we actually had at that stage because we'd come from Afghanistan and we'd spent, you know, or I'd sort of funded part of that, you know, so... Uh, he got the people to play for some serious money, you know, like a few hundred francs for every game, you know. So then we ended up uh, we ended up making several thousand francs that day. Crazy. Me by being the fall guy, right? I was the mug, you know? sure. But Mickey, when he decided that it was time to really jump in there and uh, wipe the court with these frogs, that's what he did. That's you know? classic. Yeah, and he, you know, but I never told that story before because, and I saw he actually. I saw him do that in, a, in um, once again with the frogs here in Fra- in uh, Malibu. You know, and I won't even go into whose house it was or what we were doing, but there was. I've seen him do that. Um, what were you doing in Afghanistan? We were just simply on our way to uh, coming back to France. Oh, and it was simply we'd been in Nepal, we'd been in uh, in Kashmir, we'd been in you know, like it was just we were traveling, not surfing. Know. No, oh no, no, no. What we were doing was just uh, Mickey loved the cultural thing, you know, 
So he could play, you know, he loved to play games, played games with me consistently. But I tell you what, I love the games, you know. And, I mean, he's a genuine character. Yeah. And as you mentioned before, David, we haven't got enough characters. Uh, you know, I don't know about what the kids are like now on the tour. I don't really um, – I don't, I think that you know you're selling them a little short by saying that there's none that are going to turn into being um, uh, surfers of more quality than just winning a, a WQS or a, a w, w whatever whatever W it is. Um, but from my point of view, um, I think that I um, I was fortunate enough, and still there's a few that are still alive that I get to hang out with people because they like to uh, like to hang out with people of a uh, of a similar uh, I guess it's a similar vintage or era mm. uh, and 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 those people are uh, have varying degrees of influence still in the surfing world but nothing too significant they're just really nice they're nice people that have grown through yeah. surfing yeah i guess on the top level like on the wct the problem is just that they all have sponsors with big contracts and those sponsors don't want to be painted in a certain light therefore people are reticent to express their views on things is mm, all it comes to it's a, a, a shame you know I yeah mean, it's uh, contrarian to surf surfing and surf culture yeah know? because uh, i don't know that i don't know that i don't and you know what I just tend to always think that you know, like that surfing will come uh, through in the end, you know, because they they're still riding waves, and whatever level, they'll pop out the other end and realise that sort of you know they've really had a wonderful uh, chance to turn into um, sensitive human beings by sort of just playing with nature on this level. I mean. I don't think there's ever been a uh, surfer that's ever polluted the ocean. I mean, you know, maybe some that you know I don't that I don't know about, but intentionally, surfers that throw plastic in the ocean. I, I've never known anybody, and I, you know, only, I'm only 72 years old. But I mean, from my point of view, I've never seen anybody pollute. You know, whereas you know, the thing is that all of this is all wonderful. Even what we're doing with our recycling and stuff right now in in the Western world. But, you know, you go to places like India or Bali and, you know, and they're just, you know, they're picking up all of this plastic trash off the beach. They take it in big dump trucks two miles inland and they, the dump trucks dump it in the ocean and uh, dump it in the river. The river comes out at Changu and comes right out of, and all the trash is right back there on the beach again and then all the people, all the, the women have to pick up all the trash again and put it in the dumpster. And... Uh, I, you know, I don't know how you get around that, the problem of education of people that don't understand, you know, what what can really happen, you know, the consequences. It's the, the consequences all the time or the priorities and that's what shits me about sort of people like Trump, you know, their priority. It's not what he's saying is bad, it's just the way, well, it is bad in a lot of ways, but it's still priorities, you know. Like you can put all that in there, you can do the, all these things, but you have to prioritise things. You have to know that firstly comes the planet. This is, this is our environment. And for us, firstly comes the ocean. And our whole tribe depends on this environment to be sustainable. Mm -hmm. And even if they build wave pools, 
to the degree that they are, and I understand even three just came online the last week or something. What it's amazing, and I think it's fantastic. But um, my experience with the wave pool was, it's kind of like you know, you you think that's the real thing. It doesn't feel like the real thing to me. I loved it, but I don't think it's the real thing. You know, it's kind of like sex with a prostitute, I guess. I think that's a very apt analogy. Yeah, because it's not the same as uh, as having a really good, loving relationship with a woman. Yeah. So that's a shame, but I mean, it's that's and it's a little crude, but not really. I'm trying to just paint a picture of how I see the wave pool thing, you know. And and anyway, the real ones are always going to be ridden. uh, They're going to be created by storms at sea. Yeah. That are beautiful big fronts that we actually. You know, oh, there's one coming. You can't wait till it actually generates a swell tomorrow, and everybody gets excited. You know, and the whole vibe. This is a, this is a thing. You know, that, that happens. To it. There's certain elements in surfing that no other activities in the world have it. You have that with with skiing to a degree. I was just going to. They don't do things like the paddle out. Right. The paddle out is our culture. It's that this is where. This is where primarily all those people you're talking about, that are the old people or the people that are surfed 50 or 60 years ago, people even older than me, yeah. you know, they'd relate because to paddle out and actually join hands in the celebration of someone having a wonderful life as a surfer is really a spiritual thing. And I just, I feel so, um, I'm so happy to, to, be a, to be a part of that. And I'm so happy to be a tribal elder in the whole thing. Not that it's that, that I'm not that unique. There's bloody thousands. I mean, I, there was 50 out in the water this morning. It, yeah. You know, I think it's great to even be a part of the fact that the tribe is really strong out there and getting stronger. Yeah. Uh, what surf media do you follow at this point? It's, it's a hard question because um, I don't, only for me, for me, with a if I want to be flippant about it, I say none. But if I want to get into it, you know, and think about sort of what do I really look at, you know, I look at the thing with with Matt Warshaw because I'm interested in because I've known Matt for so long, and we've had our ups and downs in our relationship. But essentially, I respect him. I think he's got a good mind, and I think he does a good job, and uh, he's doing sort of what. Uh, what someone in his capacity should do. Um, the only magazines I really read, uh, I read, are um, in Australia a thing called White Horses. Yeah. Because uh, because I used to love Grey and what Grey actually doesn't live too far from where I am. But I mean, I just like the concept of good stories about our tribe, and that's really White White Horses. And you know, as far as the journal, I mean. I've always been a great supporter of pretty much anything that Buddy Pesman was involved in, that he was the backbone of it, you know. Him and Debbie, they're both really so so strong, you know. So, I mean, I, I've, I've, I've loved that. Uh, but as far as Surfer Magazine, I think it lost its way a long time ago and I don't think it stands a chance of coming back because um, I think that it's, it's dead and buried, really, you know, unfortunately. And that, that, I don't like... The big, uh, the big media houses being involved in surfing. I don't think I they deserve to be a part of our culture. Yeah. And it, like, it's like the big publishers. 
like this was a big deal for me to get involved with Penguin Random House with this book. Okay. I mean, the fact is that they gave me, uh, they, they, they came to me and said, oh, we hear you're writing another book. And I said, yes. And they said, well, we'd like to buy it off you. Uh, because they knew that, you know, Nat's Nat had sold 84,000 copies. And, uh, but I, you know, once again, that was done for a passion to make a statement about my life. I, you know, and yes, okay, a lot of people read about it and, you know, it it had some good sex and drugs and rock and roll in there because that was my life at that stage. But Nat's Nat's lot, not, I mean, uh, but um, Church of the Open Sky is not like that at all, you know. I mean, um, in our tribe, this is something, and even if you don't buy it, if you just borrow it off somebody or you get it as the, you know, what the the books on tape or whatever they're called, that other silly system that you go and... Listen to it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I actually recorded it. Did you really? Yeah, because I'd I'd finished that, and then they wanted me to do Nat's Nat, and that was too hard because I, you know, that's the book's much. This one's not so personal. You know, this yeah. doesn't deal with ex-wives and children, and this, yes, it is in there, but it's not the same. I didn't. Nat's Nat was too too personal, you know, on that level, you know. But I still think it was an important thing to do. Important for me, uh, anyhow, because I, it was like a purging. You know? mm-hmm. But with uh, with Church of the Open Sky, like I said before, there I was in bed. I might as well do something constructive because right. um, I enjoy doing good constructive projects. You know, if I wasn't doing that, I'd probably be building something. I can't even get out of bed, so I might as well have Ty get me another diary and see where I can go with this. You know, so many things there that just uh, just had to be spelled out. And I'd always been good friends with Mike Hinson. So Mike told me sort of the play of the whole deal with him. And I've still never read any of that in any other magazine, so I know it's all reasonably fresh. And so then also Albie Falzon in Australia and what happened with Morning of the Earth, you know, one of my super good friends that I grew up with and also that lived right around the road from me, um, a guy called Baddy Trelaw, he... Um, when he was really sick and couldn't do anything to make money anymore, I asked Albie to give him a couple of thousand dollars, you know, and Albie wouldn't do that. So um, I was quite disappointed about that. But also I understood that, you know, that everybody's got their way of handling it. I don't, you know, like I said before, it's not my thing, but, you know, Batty died um, and wasn't right after that he died like a year or two after when I asked the, the guy who produced Morning of the Earth to actually give some money to Batty but you know there's, there's silly little things you know really it, and it was a good thing for me to write about because there's and the, the actual um, chapter is called copyright which talks about a surface rights so if I, if I say to you David okay then you okay with this guy running a picture of you in his magazine or in I mean, I think that surfers, every time there's a surfer uh, shot, uh, unless like you're talking about with the corporates, you know. So a picture of Mick Fanning and then, you know, you don't even have to ask uh, Buddy uh, Ripko whether that's a good idea. They'll, they're delighted for you to run the picture. But if it's somebody who's up and coming on the circuit or somebody that's totally not, not at all, you know, known at all, it's just some guy out there surfing, then that shouldn't be because he's in a public place to have his 
likeness uh, uh, procured for a, a you know a means of making an, uh, money for a company. I, I I think that there was a lot of things that I really should spell out very clearly with all of this. But really, they're just um, it's just things that I see injustices that I see. Mm-hmm. But maybe a lot of people that wouldn't agree with it. But any, anyway, as I say, it's going to make good reading over the holiday period and you can tell me whether you like it or not, you know. Yeah. One thing I'd like to get your philosophy on, by the way, I uh, I asked this to, I was up in Whidbey Island three weeks ago and I spent time with Drew Campion. Okay. He said to say hello. I know, I've got a, it's on my list to call him. Oh, is it? Oh, yes. Yeah, uh, okay, cool. We are go you, back a long way and we've been good friends for a long time. How far north are you headed on this trip? Uh, just to San Francisco, and then uh, we drive straight over to um, to Sun Valley. Okay. Yeah. Well, with Campion, he never really answered the question definitively. He fully engaged in it, but just never kind of gave me a definitive answer. And the question is about drug usage. Is it a net gain or a net loss? And he and I kind of spoke about psychedelics in addition to marijuana, and you're welcome to discuss whatever you'd like, but I'll just ask you about weed. With decades of experience to reflect on, do you view usage as solely beneficial, or do you worry that it maybe has uh, mortgaged mental acuity in later life? Do you ever read Nat's Nat? No. Okay, well, you don't really know them, but there's one whole chapter in there where I talk about uh, Wayne Lynch, Ted Spencer, and um, a guy called. Uh, we were making a movie called. A movie called I can't remember, but anyway, it's basically we were in Morocco in '69, you know, and scrawled on the on the side of a mosque. Keef is like a fire. A little will keep you warm, but a lot will burn you. Bottom line on this is that it's like I told you about waves. I don't need that many. I know I'm addicted, but I can make sure that I really govern how many I have because, you know, satisfaction comes to me by just doing five turns with any significance. Satisfaction comes to me. I don't need to get stoned right now in this part of my life and I feel good about the fact that I don't need to get stoned anymore, like to actually smoke pot. But I tell you what, I'm never going to forget those lessons, you know, and all the things that happened to me. So a little bit is, just, if it's necessary, and I'll know, everybody will know when it's necessary for them personally to get stoned. You've got to remember the lessons of the 70s and the 80s as surfers and as a human being and where we really got to, you know. And Drew's the classic example of that, you know. He's he, he was he was writing, um, you know, his thesis on bloody Bob Dylan, and all about being bloody, you know, while he was just loaded out of his gills, you know. Yeah. And that's a really wonderful thing to do. But you've got to be really, you've got to temper it as you get older. You know, we've got to be we've got to be guarded about sort of getting losing the connection that we have and as soon as you make the connection you don't fuck it up yeah. don't 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 let it get to a point where you're where you're actually not clear about where what direction you're headed in and about what are important and what the priorities i mean i see everything 
as a surfer, as a, now as an elder statesman of surfing. And I don't want to see it any other way. And I really would not advise anyone to get loaded out of their brains for too long because if you do, you run the risk. I don't necessarily, it may not happen to you, but you run the risk of losing it, you know. And if you lose a connection, like a connection with a woman that you had that was really strong or with a family that you already... No, no, no. Be strong. Think of think of waves and think about how every time you want to paddle out and it's really big surf, you be aware of what the fuck you're getting yourself oh, yeah. into because the nature will win every time. It'll hold you down, put your... F- Put your your foot or its foot on the back of you and hold you under till you're ready to die. So, don't take it lightly. The uh, your kind of lessons or comments about balance resonate for me a lot. Just probably because of the phase of life that I'm at, trying to suss out, um, not going full steam into things. And I used to feel the same way as you with surfing. It's like. I need to improve every session. I need more waves, but ultimately I would get out of the water more often than not frustrated that I didn't progress in my ability level. Um, And so now I've kind of gotten to the point that you're talking about where just getting in the water is enough, like getting a wave. I think I use a quote from that wonderful guy up in San Francisco. Uh, What's his name? The guy who wrote that beautiful book, he talks about, the anyway, it doesn't matter. The principle here was sitting out the back and uh, watching the uh, the waves come and the whole roll of the ocean and the whole... Uh, the, the, the being just in nature like that is a Zen metaphor. Yeah. And it's true, you know. Just even to do that is so good for you mm-hmm. to be at peace with that, you know. And if there's other people all around you, then I tell you, paddle down the beach, gain that because that sort of clarity and understanding is what you'll only gain as a surfer, you know, and you need, you need, actually you need space, I think, to do that. Yeah, I agree. You mentioned at the beginning of the conversation that you meditate. What, what's your practice and what type of meditation? Oh, hippie shit. <laughs> no, I learned it from, uh, from Ted Spencer, actually who was uh, a really close friend of mine that I haven't got much contact with anymore, but he was a great Australian surfer and did a lot of very, very good things uh, by surfing and good things for me. And uh, one of the things was that he turned me on to a, uh, which basically I suppose it's like a, a version of TM, which was, you know, just uh, consistently... Um, uttering a mantra to yourself in order to get into a state of uh, not really thinking, I suppose, giving the brain a rest. So I do it just simply to give the brain a rest because I think our brains are so active. It's really... And the thing is, the good thing about this sort of stuff is when you get the brain into the habit, then it has to have it. It's addictive too, just just like we are to surfing... The brain needs this. It goes, give me some time off for fuck's sake, you know. Do you, I think that's cool. Can you share your mantra? Do you have a mantra? Uh, no, it's not. So, yeah, yeah, I do, but, I mean, it doesn't matter what it is. You can be saying, I eat fucking roast beef, you know. Okay. You can say anything. Well, you, you know, you can say anything you want as long as it's repetition 
in order to kick the brain into thinking that there's, that you don't need to think. Gotcha. So it's not, you know, it doesn't matter what I, what I say, really. <laughs> it's not like you're saying a positive affirmation. It's just the no, monotony that's no, no, it's tuning the, out your totally. brain. Totally. I don't say anything, you know, like, I mean, you know, you could say, you know, if I wanted to really do it all again now and I go, okay, how are you going to put this together? You go, okay, you know, you go, nature equals God, you know, and then, yeah. you'd get, then you'd know that Tom Blake was the one, uh, you know. <laughs> You know, you could you could do it any other way. You know, it's this. Uh, all you're doing is just trying to is consistently each day putting yourself in a space of not having to think about it. Gotcha. Do you do it at the same time every day? And not necessarily. Okay. I've been jet lagged lately because I'm dealing with uh, still the clock. No matter how it seems like the older you get, the more the clock gets affected coming from uh, from Australia to America. Yeah, that's understandable. I remember it didn't ever really affect me that much in the old days, but now when I I get here, it's just. <sighs> I remember a great tennis player, Guy Vaugier, once telling me that when he was travelling on the circuit, one of the best ways to do it was that if I was supposed to be eating my breakfast in the middle of the night or in the afternoon, then I'd do it then, really, wherever it was. So he'd adjust. He'd take on all of the all of the. Uh, facets of his actual dietary and sleeping before he went there. So as when he got to Australia, he could uh, compete on a high level without having to uh, physically have to do it like me. Like right now, you know, I had to stay and I hate staying up more than 9 o'clock. I stayed up till 11.30 last night watching a movie because I'm trying to get out of this, this Party whole animal. thing. Party animal, exactly. <laughs> Um, the last question for everybody is just what was the last surfboard that you rode this morning? It was a, um, uh, a Takayama made by, uh, not Donald. It was made by Tommy Moss. A few years ago when I was here, I asked, um, uh, I asked Tommy to build me a board. I knew he was a good shaper and I, you know, he had always, and Donald had schooled him very much in the ways to go about it. So, uh, but I don't know whether it's even that. I think it's more just sort of with uh, HIC. I think were you know very very good positive longboards, and you know, and so what basically it probably could have been anybody, but uh, I just needed a longboard for today because you know you're playing with places with a continental shelf, and there's no real the waves not trying to leap over your head. It's doing a nice easy pitch and that's uh, so I'd rather surf a uh, longboard sometimes you know actually in California I think most of the time I mean that new board will be here from Ryan I hope if he ever comes back <laughs> next week and then I'll be able to travel with that because I do intend to um, to, to surf quite a bit this uh, this winter instead of you know the, um, the reason I want to surf this winter as opposed to all the other winters is I'm realizing how long it took me to in the last, say, five years when I first get home in Australia to adjust to the timing of a wave, jumping up quick enough with the timing of the wave, it's just a pain in the ass. I go over the falls like three or four, probably four or five times in the first half hour, you know, because especially if it's a solid surf, you know, where there's a good swell. So... Why do that, you know? There's no real... That's that, it's that what you were saying before about the ocean's moving all the time. 
with snow it's not moving and maybe the same when you actual uh, when you lay an edge down in it but when you're not laying an edge down in it then that's what you've got to think about the moving the moving energy is really uh, hard to totally predict unless your head is totally understanding exactly when that where that energy is going to break and I know the reefs around where I live really well but also it gets a little tricky sometimes with you know a swell can be only five degrees different and you'll see a different when you're playing with a reef break and right. can make a hell of a difference you know you think you're in a good good situation and you think you've got it all together and then the wave pitches right there and breaks right on your back you know it's good, it's good well it's you. good to hear Nat Young saying that no. To be honest, for all of the intermediate surfers, including myself, well, listening, who struggle just to hold get to it our by feet. the tail, you know. When you get a chance, you grab the fucking thing, you know. Don't let it go, you know. And that's what I've been doing every year. So I get so addicted to skiing and snowboarding that I just, I just think, oh, I should be able to adjust to that when I get back. Uh, uh-uh, you yeah. can't. I can't. Yeah. Well, I can't. Anyway, maybe other people can, but I can't. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks for taking the You're time. You're welcome. Right. Pleasure. Light up the skies for you. I don't want to fool no more on the goodness that there is. Chance that there are the risk, and I wish the love would for each and every one. And I know I'm gonna get me some in the shadow of the sun. Don't wanna put my foot. Another song for you No, I don't want to put my feelings Into another song I'll be at the Vistla store in Pacific City in Huntington Beach this Monday from 4 to 6 p.m. to help Nat launch the book Swing by to say hi and grab a copy. Or if you're anywhere else in the world, visla.com is where you can find the book and indulge yourself in some clothing as well. They make board shorts out of coconuts, recovery t-shirts from upcycled materials, lots of sustainable efforts going on at Visla. And not only do they sponsor some of the most interesting surfers in the world, but they also sponsor shapers, laminators, filmmakers, visla.com or through your local retailer. Everything that Nat and I discussed in this episode is available on surfsplendorpodcast.com. It's also where you can find the donation button to support this show, which enters you to win one of two Almond R-Series slash Surfrider Foundation soft top surfboards. The boards are high performance or let's say medium performance soft tops that are also 100% recyclable. I've got photos and all the specs on surfsplendorpodcast.com slash donate. I will pick two lucky winners on December 1st and then post that reveal in my Instagram stories at surfsplendor. 
And I believe that is all for this week. I'm actually recording this intro and outro in Florida at the Florida Surf Film Festival. If you're anywhere near New Smyrna Beach, swing by on this Friday or Saturday night to watch some surf films and to hang out. I'll be recording an episode of The Grit here on Friday with Chaz Smith. We're hopefully going to wrangle Matt Warshaw in to join us. And then there's a couple of other surprise guests that we'll have as well. So until then, this is David Scales for Surf Splendor reminding you to get back in the water. In the spirit of Nat Young, you should share some waves and, of course, shred on. Thank you.